and welcome to Planet Poetry. I'm Robin Houghton. And I'm Peter Kenny. In this episode, Robin talks to Sasha Dugdale about her two collections, Joy and Defamations. And Peter does a bit of a U-turn. A screeching U-turn. In his, in, his, in his thoughts about Mary Oliver. And meanwhile, I've been thinking about one of those next generation poets from 2014, whose debut collection I was raving about at the time. And I'm wondering what's happened to him. I'm feeling a bit bereft. He's gone to ground. It's a bit of a poetic crush, isn't it, by the sound of it? Could be, could be. I did see him read once and he signed my copy. What did you say? (laughs) Would you sign my copy? (laughs) And that was the last straw that broke the camel's back. (laughs) Anyway, perhaps we should hear what Sasha Dodale had to say to Robin. Sasha Dugdale is a poet and translator. She's published five collections of poetry, most recently Defamations, Carcanet 2020, which was shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize. Her long poem, Joy, won the Forward Prize for Best Single Poem in 2016. Sasha's translations of Russian poetry, prose and drama include Maria Stepanova's In Memory of Memory, Fitzcarraldo 2021, which was shortlisted for the International Booker Prize. So a big planet poetry welcome to Sasha Dugdale. Hi, Sasha. Hello, Robin. You're going to start, I think, by reading an extract from your wonderful prize-winning poem, Joy which is it's quite a few pages, isn't it? Yeah, it's about, I think if you read it uh, from beginning to end, it takes about 40 minutes. Gosh. So it's a, it's a kind of one-person show, one-woman show. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But don't worry, I'm not going to read for 40 minutes. No! <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a bit about the extract you're going to read and uh, put, us in the, put us in the picture a bit. It's a poem which is spoken by Catherine Blake. She's the wife of William Blake, the artist, poet, painter. He's a kind of Renaissance man. And uh, Catherine Blake speaks this monologue after William Blake has died. So it's the monologue of a widow grieving, not just for a person, but I think a whole way of life. So it's perhaps useful to know that William and Catherine Blake met each other when they were very young. They were only, I think, 20. And they lived together for 50 years. And they lived in this incredible sort of proximity I suppose they were both devoted to Blake's work as an engraver painter poet they both worked together with some of the the most toxic chemicals producing Hmm. the engravings the you know inking them and producing them it was a quite a sort of difficult and arduous cottage industry and they they were there together side by side working on this um this not just the poetry but the whole sort of industrial production of engravings and prints. So they're sort of involved in the first stage of the mass-produced image, really. And it's it's a really interesting relationship because Catherine, when she meets William Blake, is um, illiterate. She's the daughter of a market gardener. But he kind of fixes on her and says, you know, she's the person he wants to marry and spend his life with. So mm-hmm. there was a great relationship. And of course, because of the times, it's traditional to see the relationship as, you know, Blake, William Blake leading. But I think there's something really important about the, the joint nature of the work and the way that the two lives slotted together, which I also wanted to commemorate in the poem. When I, I wrote the poem, I'd just been completely immersed in Blake's work, completely. I'd read nothing else for... <laughs> months so it felt it feels very much as if it came from that work and I see that now when I look back and read it the walls are wordless there is a clock ticking I have woken up from a dream of abundant colour and joy I see his face and he is a shepherd and a piper and a god I see him bent by the grate setting the fire and he is a fallen demon. I see him listening to the wind and sorrowing. I see wrath and misery, fire and desolation, a thousand fires in ancient London, 
and then the grass comes silent, silent, with the hardest colour of all, the mirth colour, the corn colour, the summer night colour. A thousand thousand summer nights pass, and children weave their daisy chains and place them on the heads of fallen idols. He wept. He wept more tears than there were days, and never chain the door lest, he said, we drive an angel from it. And every morning he dipped his brush in wrath and mildness, and out of him tumbled the biggest things of all, all of them righter than the rightest calculation, and truer than any compass. Yet where they were right and true, none could say, and how they were right and true, none could guess. But I knew. I knew. He was an eye, and the eye wept and frowned and smiled. The eye watched. The eye watered. The world was a moat in that eye. The moat was a world in that eye. And his brush was a blade. And his tears made a lake. How I ache. How I ache. Soul partner. And soul part of all these joys he read to me in the summer house where we sat when Mr. Butts came knocking and found us naked, reading as we read every warm day. The poor man liked to tell that story to everyone as proof of the wildness of our life, though it never did seem wild to me, but consistent in all respects and full of holy sobriety, which looks to the untrained eye like wild joy. William stood then and made a deep bow to Satan, who had been watching, and said, You are welcome to our garden, sir. Satan had a round, sad face, like a water-wheel, and seemed tired and full of pity. He wore his rainbow snake around him, and when he saw we meant him no harm, he bowed and shriveled to a vapour. But Mr. Butts came in and ate some grapes. When you first read this poem, you think, is it about joy? It's, it's more like a woman uh, grieving for her husband and yet there's an immense amount of fun and you can see the richness of their lives through this poem I think and what was your thinking behind calling it joy can I ask? Well I think it is about joy because I think joy is the other side of the coin of grief without joy there is no grief and Blake was very keen on um, joy because I think he had a very childlike vision of things he, he wasn't cynical and he wasn't worldly. He seems to have been very pure in his, in his outlook in a way that is quite, it seems to me, quite exemplary. Catherine is faced with a dilemma in the poem, which is that the devil comes and says to her, wouldn't you prefer oblivion? And she says, no, I, I don't want oblivion because I'd prefer to grieve and remember the joy. Actually, it made me go back to songs of innocence and experience. And I, I did then notice the word joy comes up again and again. This is something that William expressed in his poems. I understand what you're saying, his, this kind of exemplary way that he seemed to view the world. And even the songs of experience are not cynical. They're not, they don't come from a place of world weariness I don't know and I can see why in some ways he was ostracized or he certainly stood very um at a very sort of in a very marginal place in terms of his art and his poetry he wasn't recognized in his lifetime I like this idea of you being completely immersed in his work for three months and reading nothing but <laughs> Blake for three months is that is that typical of your method are you sort of a method poet <laughs> I like the idea of being immersed. yes I am I suppose only because I seem to find it impossible to do things differently. I wish I could, but it's very hard for me to adjust my levels of engagement so that they're, so that they're up, yeah. up manageable, really. It's a good quality. <laughs> it's not terribly helpful. <laughs> so Joy is the long poem in the book called Joy, and you kind of pull the idea of memory and memorialising, I suppose, I think, through the rest of the book. Actually, the very last poem 
called For Edward Thomas struck me as a, a lovely example of that. And I don't know if that's something you might like to read. For yeah, us. I'd be really happy to read that. In the notes that you sent me, um, you talked about how this poem relates to Adelstrop. And I think you commented that the rhyme scheme is similar, yeah. which was really fascinating to me because, well, I wonder if that's actually more about Edward Thomas than about my poem, because my poem was responding to a different poem by Edward Thomas oh, really? about the clouds in the sky. So it's a yes. sort of response to that. But I think perhaps what, what you picked up on is his very, very integral kind of sense of the world and language. And his poems, they, sometimes they seem to me to be like one long poem, just divided up because right. they're, the, the voice is so constant. Ah. Well, uh, no, that's, that's really interesting. I'll have to look at it again now. The, in fact, the clouds was one of the things that reminded me of Adelstrop. But maybe perhaps we could hear it now, please. Yes, yeah. For Edward Thomas. Not a cloud in the sky, and the pier hangs in mist. No swiftness, and not a cloud to mark this soul, but brightness all round so fiercely torpid, nothing can be seen at all. The front is so wide I walk with my eyes closed, and the sea breathes shallow as a roosting dove. My unblemished soul goes shapeless through the light, pale calf-hide. It has need of the cloud's love. There you stand, like the fish upon its tail, who tasted all the various hells upon the earth, and was marked forever by the passage of a cloud and the rain and the birds and all such things of worth. Yes, the birds, you see, there you go. And, yeah. and also, yeah. uh, I was thinking of the various hells on earth, maybe being all, all those, you know, Gloucestershire and... <laughs> 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 it's beautiful. And uh, another poem in the book, but I won't ask you to read it, but uh, is Days, based upon a book of women's experiences in the Second World War, a book by Svetlana Alexeyevich. Yeah. So tell me a bit about how you got to write this. Days is a poem in parts. I read Svetlana Alexeyevich's book, which is, I don't quite know what you call it, because it's journalism. She interviews people and talks about their experiences, but it is sort of modulated. It's turned into something that's really good to read. And I really loved how she talked to people and she created prose which is made of people's lives and respects people and sees them as individual and rescues them from situations where there's no respect mm. for them and for their for their humanity it's really hard to read though some of the things she describes are really terrible so days was a a series of poems where i used different kind of um verbatim moments f about war in Russia, where I lived quite a long time, but also in the UK, to create a sort of war tapestry, really. A tapestry, so. that's a good way of describing it, I think. A theme that comes up again through these two books of yours that we're talking about, joy and deformations, is that you take historic or fictional characters who may be, who may be men, but you look at the women in their sphere of influence shall we say either not just wives or daughters but the women they come in contact with and you kind of give them a voice a bit like you were saying about the Alexeyevich work you know, you, you're pulling out the stories and the voices of people who we don't normally get to hear from is that something that would you say that was true yeah I think so and it's interesting because I didn't set out to do that necessarily I mean if I set out to do anything no. I'm not sure when I started to write the Catherine Blake piece, it was actually a commission um, from a Russian museum that was doing a very large exhibition of Blake work. And they asked me if I would write something that could be used as a performance piece. Uh -uh. I wanted to write about Blake and I couldn't find a way in. And then I suddenly just sat down and started writing from the point of view of Catherine Blake. And I realised that that's, that, that was the way in. So you said they wanted a performance piece. I was going to ask you about that because Joy does read, uh, it's got stage directions. It reads almost like a, 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 mon a dramatised monologue. Is it something that has been performed or could it be performed? Yes, it was performed by the actor Linda Bassett, who I 
I really love Linda. I'd worked with her at the Royal Court. She's been in Carol Churchill's plays. She's now on Call the Midwife. She's just a great actor. And I I almost had her in mind when I wrote it. (laughs) But then Ledbury Poetry Festival asked if I would like to do it as a performance. And if so, who would be the right person? And I, I said, it's Linda and got in touch with her. And she did actually come and perform it at Ledbury and then at Winchester. I'd like to just ask you a bit about your most recent book. So Deformations is in three sections, one of which is this section called Welfare Handbook, and it's based on the writings, I believe, of Eric Gill. I think these are examples of how you've shown us some of the women in his sphere, but kind of through his eyes, through his writings. And uh, it's a quite a painful read at times, I think. And also, he's a sort of Sussex character, isn't he? And Blake had had a Sussex connection too. Is that are you drawn to characters from this area? I think you live in Sussex, don't you? Is that is that an inane question? No, not at all. I think that there was definitely a link with the Gill because I went to the, you know, I live quite near Ditchling, mm-hmm. where Eric Gill had his guild yeah. and his community, and to some extent. The cultural history, local cultural history does affect you. So there are very definite links with my life in the sense that he converted to Catholicism. The guild was a Catholic guild. Ah. So the guild eventually disappeared, but the people who came to Ditchling are still there and their children are Catholics and their grandchildren. So interestingly, the church that I went to as a Catholic child was also a church that, you know, the guild children that were still in Ditchling went to. So there is a real kind of definite link with... uh, Yes, absolutely. Of course, you know, Ditchling is is still a very artistic place. It has a a museum. With the Gill, there's a a local link, not so much with William Blake. I'd say I think of him as a real Londoner, really. Welfare Handbook. Now, that just that title is somewhat sinister, I think. Tell us a bit about why you chose that title and, and a bit about the context of this section of the book. Welfare Handbook was actually the title of a book that was printed by the St. Dominic's Press, which Gill was part of. So it's not my invention. It it came from something they produced. And I think Eric Gill did the lettering. Uh Gill, on the one hand, we know that he was, well, he was a sexual experimenter. He was a kind of philanderer that he sexually abused his children And yet he was full of like, you know, these little welfare handbooks, good advice. He wrote a lot of essays on, you know, how people should comport themselves. And um, so there's that sort of irony or maybe the sort of the slightly jarring nature of those two things when they're put together. Yeah, Um, yeah. Would you like to read uh, an extract from, uh, is it actually a sequence or are there separate poems within it? I wasn't quite sure. Some have titles and I'm not sure if if that they ran over or I honestly could say it grew quite organically this whatever it is sequence <laughs> cycle I'm not sure and yes some of them have got titles and some of them haven't mm-hmm. so I'll read a really short poem from this Gill did lots and lots of religious paintings and drawings mostly and one of the things he did was a whole series of erotic drawings from Songs of Solomon Ah, And this is almost like a found poem, really. And it's a series of different translations of lines from Songs of Solomon. Translations A garden enclosed is my sister, A locked rock garden and a sealed spring. My sister is a garden that is locked. My sweetheart is a closed garden. A fountain closed off to all others. A garden enclosed is my sister. A spring shut up. A fountain sealed. Mm, there's, a, there's a wonderful sort of circularity. We're going back and around the same, almost the same words, but in different orders. And even enclosed comes with an E and later on enclosed with an I. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it relates very much to the material of the sequence, which is which is about Gill's sexual experimentation and his sexual abuse. Right, yes. What What is and isn't closed off. Yes, yeah. And how to deal with it, because he's a very it's sort of elusive presence. He was such a foundational figure in British art. I mean, he was everywhere. He designed everything. I mean, he's still there in Gil Sands, Perpetua, Joanna, yeah. you know, the, the typefaces that Faber used, that many other publishers use. He's there, uh, you know, with his Prospero and Ariel 
BBC. He did the Stations of the Cross in Westminster Cathedral. Didn't he do lots of um, war memorials as well in towns? War memorials around the country. He, the, the post office commissioned stamps from him. You know, for yes. a time, he was a, such a, a, a sort of foundational figure, really, and you can't get past him. And then, and of course, it wasn't until the 80s that all the details of his sexual life, his sexual abuse came out. And so we have to somehow reconcile all that. And in some ways, it's it's just one of a number of things that I suppose right at the moment we're trying to reconcile from the past. Hmm. I was going to ask you also to read the final poem, I think, in your collection, Deformations, The Fall of the Rebel Angels. I hear echoes back to Blake and the angels, The Fall of the Rebel Angels. I rather... I was rather taken with this. I thought you might read this for us. Yeah, I'd love to. And this is, you're quite right, this is a Blakean poem. Somebody said to me that The Fall of the Rebel Angels is kind of a, a, an exhortation to change or do something better or kind of be different in a Blakean way. You, have a, you can have a fire in your writing that reminds me of Blake and that you want things to, to be better. And, you know, we have to, as you say, shine a light on the, on the terrible things. Even the title, Deformations, there's this sense of society at, at breaking point. Fall of the Rebel Angels. They didn't fall. It wasn't a pillar of legs and arms, a downpour of limbs a shaft of flesh like a rainstorm, dark over the sea. No, they walked. They shouldered packs, laced boots, adjusted straps, in high-spec technical wear, fleeces, gaiters. Fearless, the angels dropped from mountain top and picked through the debris of rock, hopped over pavements, sundew, Grikes down scarps and slopes, entering the world on the thinnest paths, the GRs from the stars, the trails, the aura of a rope team on a glacier, the scramble, the clumsy jump, the odd angel on a bog, jumping like a man from clump to clump of cotton grass, falling into mud on a seraphic arse, over stiles and gates and shifting slate and dry stone walls, built before the world knew how to fall, and bathing in tarns, marvelling at lambs, napping under pines, walking, walking in angelic lines. And when they slept, their up till then unused legs kept walking in their sleep. Their dreams were of rights of way, and even when the coming of day meant binding feet and the dampness of wings. Still, they hoisted their packs and took their flasks and walked and walked, lacing the land with endless small tracks, which led where angels did not fear to tread, down into valleys and snaking over passes, shining tracks, visible to the naked eye, the man in glasses, the woman holding a map, daily trespassing angels, angels who walked and fell from grace into mountain streams. Forgive us our lack of dreams. We have forgotten how to rebel. Did you write this? As a, Was it a commission for a, a rambling society or something like that? Did I read correctly? Yeah, it was, a, it was a commission for poems about walking, 10 poems about walking, you know, ah, the candlestick press. candlestick, yes, 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 yes. I love walking, I walk all the time, but I couldn't think how to write a poem about walking. And then I saw Rachel Kneebone's sculpture in the V&A, she does sort of ceramic sculptures, and uh -huh. it was of all these writhing legs and arms. <laughs> I started writing about that, and it turned out to be about walking, so <laughs> everyone was happy. <laughs> That's a great description of how you can go round about to a subject and uh, make it your own and make it very original. Now, you were the editor of Modern Poetry and Translation for several years, weren't you? So I know you are a skilled translator and I wanted to ask you about that. We've had Yang Lian, fine Chinese poet, on the podcast and we really had a lot of good feedback. People are really interested in reading, I think, poetry both in translation and hearing it in the original and I've had the joy of hearing you read in Russian and then and then the translation 
it's sometimes said that translating poetry actually can help you with your own poetry. I mean, is that something you feel at all? I often get asked about the relationship between poetry, writing it and translating it. And the truth is, I'm not quite sure. Hmm. They're very different in some ways, because it's somebody else's voice. So you're trying to find a shape for it in English. So it's possible that you exercise the right poetic muscles. um, But it's also you use your poetic energies. So I'm not sure. I'm never quite sure if it's a good thing to do or a bad thing to do. It seems like, I don't know. (laughs) And often the poetry that you translate is so very different from work that might be, for example, contemporary in Britain, that it's at such an oblique angle. I think that probably is good because it it forces you to look outside the quite narrow confines of a national poetic culture and think about Uh poetry more broadly. So Uh it's certainly that. And then perhaps just words that you're forced to use because you're translating that you might not have in your natural poetic vocabulary Yes. They, they start to figure in your, your poetic thinking. Some poetry is translated sort of in a two-way process, isn't it? Like a Chinese poet, one might work from an English literal translation of the, like a crib of the poem and then turn it into a poem uh, f- from that, like in, in a two-step process. Is that something you've ever been involved in or do you tend to translate from languages that you're already familiar with? I only really translate from languages that I know and for them, you know, almost entirely from Russian. Interestingly, I can't translate from what might be called a bridge or a literal sometimes. Mm. I've tried once, I had to prepare some literals for Michael Rosen who wanted to do some translation of Russian children's poems and I prepared a few and he took a couple and translated them. And I thought, well, I've done a couple more. I should probably use them and work them up myself. And when I went to look at the the literals that I'd written for somebody else, they were useless to me because they were like a whole veil had come down over the original poem and I I couldn't Uh, see the poem, I couldn't get to the poem. So I couldn't do that work at all. So I'm not used to working with literals. That's not to say that I think it's a wrong practice. I think, you know, it's worked very well for for many pairings of poets and translators, but it doesn't work for me. So are you going to read us something maybe yes, in Russian and, yeah. then, and then the translation? Okay, lovely. This is really new. It's a poem by Marina Tsutaeva and it's a long poem called Poem of the Air and I've translated the whole thing but I, I'm still working on my draft. So this is the, the first part. Marina Tsutaeva wrote the poem in the 20s after Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic. There was crazy, um, a sort of crazy Lindbergh mania when he arrived and, you know, everybody was into flying and aeroplanes. And it was in the period just after that that Marina Sotaiva wrote this poem. And it's also a poem about death because her friend, her great friend Rilke had just died. And so she was coming to terms with that. So it's this, it's this wonderful tr- kind of transcendental poem that whirls upwards and it's brilliant. So I'll just read the first bit in Russian and then I'll read it in English. Great. And the poem is called, in Russian it's called Poema Vozducha, Poem of the Air. Ну вот, и двустыши начальные, первый в гость. Дверь явно затихла, как дверь, за которой гость, стоявший так хвоя у входа, спросите, дов. Был полон покоя, как гость, за которым зов. Хозяина, денье, хозяйское. Скажем так, был полон терпения, как гость, за которым знак хозяйки, все тьмы знак, тамоне поверх слуг, живой ли призрак, как гость, за которым стук, сплошной непосредством, ничем от того и мрем, хозяйки на сердце, березы под топором, расколотый ящик, пандорин, ларец забот, Без счета входящих, но кто же без стука ждет? Уверенность в слух и в срок, припав к стене, уверенность в ухе ответном, твоя по мне, заведомость вход, до сладкое игры в страх особого рода, оттяжка с ключом в руках. So that's the first bit in Russian. And in English, it reads, Poem of the Air. Well, here's the opening 
couplet, the first nail, the door quietening as if a guest beyond waits, standing like pine fanned on a coffin as any widow will affirm stillness itself stands like one who has been drawn to a home for a wake, hence patience itself, like a guest who has been conducted thence with a radiance in the darkness, lightning struck and striped his back, spirit or flesh, like a guest who has been summoned to the beat, too many, too fast, no one, not this woman's heart, can bear axe-blow to the birch-root, Pandora's box cleft asunder, her chest of woes cracked. They enter and are beyond number, but who waits and doesn't knock, sure of being heard when the time comes, leaning on the wall, sure of an answering ear, sure of mine, of admittance. Oh, the sweet passion-sport, the dalliance, and delay with key gripped tight. That's the end of the... Hmm. Gosh. And that's the first part. And that's a long poem as well. That's kind of a a, a ten-page poem that carries on getting more and more involved. And it's a wonderful poem. Thank you so much for reading that. And... um, there is one more thing I want to ask you. And what are you working on at the moment? Have you got any new projects in the pipeline you want to tell us about? I'm working on a long poem. I got COVID in December and I had sort of post-viral and I was Ugh. symptoms and I was sitting in bed where in fact I am again today. Oh. But the advantage of it was that I sort of had to cut right down on work and, and I just cleared some time and I started writing short amounts each day um, that I think will be slightly different to the things that I've written for that it probably should take up a book and it's something that I I really enjoyed writing and I also sort of having great fun with it and it's it's been really interesting one of the things I wanted to do in the poem was put lots of bits of translation in and I've mm. never done that before to the same extent although there's a little bit of that in defamations but actually sort of taking little poems I've translated and kind of mm. putting them into the fabric of the poem sort of a bit hybrid a bit hybridy maybe yeah, I just like the idea of using that uh, or perhaps breaking down the boundary a bit between the work that I do and I'm translating, which is also a sort of form of reading or form of loving a poem and bringing that into mm. the into the, the text that I was mm. writing. So I'm I mean, really enjoying that. So you're working on, even though you're sort of still recovering, as it were. It's all been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much, Sasha Dugdale, for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for all your questions and your your curiosity. So... I absolutely love that interview with Sasha. She's such a a fascinating poet. You know, her immersion in Blake's language was so kind of deep, and you know, she's obviously steeped in Blake's poetry. Yeah, it does have that intensity, doesn't it? I mean, she described that, didn't she? That she went through that process of total immersion, like a method actor. That's sort of the way it felt like to me. So, yeah. I mean, she really engages with other writers, and that's where she seems to find her inspiration, certainly in the bits that you asked her to read? Well, uh, I think because I steered Sasha towards certain poems, then it's possible, in fact, it's absolutely the case that we didn't really cover the full range of just these two collections. And of course, she's written other books too. But I, I feel that she was not necessarily focusing particularly on those writers, but how they are seen now through successive generations their kind of legacy or how they are yeah you know, their legacy how they're memorialized and, and when and when the memory or the memorial of of a great figure cha- how it changes over time and how how things move on how do we then come to terms with different ways of looking at them you know eric gill is the obvious case we talked a bit about that about how there's this uh his terrible personal life, which has come to the fore in recent years, 
kind of clouds our ability to perhaps appreciate the fantastic contribution that he made uh, to uh, public art and aesthetics. And how do we cope with that? And I think, you know, it's bigger questions. Yeah, I, I love this idea that an, an artist has to be, you know, I think Eric Gill was very extreme, but this idea that an artist somehow, not only has the work got to be a, a, excellent, but that he, they, he or she has to be exemplary as well in their own personal conduct. I think it's a bit of an ask, really. Well, and, and has to be, you know, why do yeah. they have to be? Is it because we want them to be? Interesting, you use the word exemplary because that's the word Sasha used about William Blake, didn't she, at one point? So, um, anyway, we, we we focused on those two sections of the book. That Deformations is in three sections, and there's a whole section called Pity Sad, which is a kind of reimagining of various scenes and characters and fragments from the Odyssey. Mm. And in that, she revoices, if you like some of the characters in such a way that it just kind of disrupts what we think of as the Odyssey. And it takes a classic text like that and and it kind of interrogates it, if I can say that, in a really interesting way. I really like the poem, The Fall of the Rebel Angels. Um, Yeah. It was almost like these rebel angels were refugees, you know, fleeing the sense of them all walking along and kind of slouching yeah. along in the in the protective gear and so on um yes and sort of relentless you know they're, they're going to get there mm. there's a huge amount of humor in her work even though there are some grim topics and she herself said that defamations is quite a difficult book yeah. both it it was difficult to write and it's difficult to read from she doesn't shy away from horrific imagery and language and Perhaps that didn't come across, but when you read these books, you know, they are, they're quite, they shake you, you know, they're not, mm-hmm. uh, Sasha is this lovely, gentle voiced person, but you know, this stuff is, is powerful stuff. I like the fact that joy itself was, a can also be performed as a play, you know, it, it is a kind of hybrid yes. thing. Yes. Uh, and as someone that's uh, written a few plays, I can imagine it is rather an excellent, uh, monologue so what do you think about when sasha read in russian it was amazing it was almost like she became another person i sometimes yeah. think that when you hear people speaking in other languages that you've heard speaking in english you think gosh that they're accessing a whole different part of their personalities somehow i think that's probably true i mean she she talked a bit about the you know the art of translation and how that she finds it impossible to translate from an english literal translation oh, yeah. because she kind of there's things she can't literally as you say can't access because what she would access normally in the russian is no longer there for her it's kind of lost yeah i i, I was really interested in that kind of idea of translating directly from a language or having you know a sort of another person in the you know the stage to it yeah when we spoke to yang lian and brian holton i I wish i'd asked a bit more about that really yeah because i know brian Holton is absolutely fluent in uh, Mandarin. Right, right. I know Yang Lian has worked with other poets, you know, like Pascal Petit springs to mind, that who's translated, he's done a version of the poem and then in English, and then they've done a different translation. Interesting, isn't it? People work in different ways, I guess. But mm. And it just was, I just, you know, I just love hearing her speak Russian. I think it's a beautiful language to, to listen to. Yeah, in the times we're at, actually, it's it's so good to you know remember that you know Russia is is a, an amazing place with a, a wonderful culture, and just because at the moment it has a psycho as a leader, doesn't mean we should dismiss everything Russian. I agree entirely, and I'm sure Sasha would be the first to agree with that. And I know these are difficult times for someone like her with friends uh, in Russia, but there is this rich cultural heritage that we must not forget and still celebrate. So, Robin, you've been at that Twitter again, haven't you? <laughs> I actually, at the beginning of the year, I, I, I put a little pinned tweet saying, I'm just taking a little break. And then mm. I think some people were, were sort of slightly puzzled and then everything went quiet. So 
a couple of days ago was my 15th anniversary oh, wow. of being on Twitter. So I thought I ought to perhaps, you know, make, make an effort to stay. Anyway, I've just been looking at a few things and there was, um, a tweet the other day by Matt Haig, who said, I'm thinking long and hard about what the point is of another poetry book. Being brutally honest, we all flick through, have a read, and then it's on a bookshelf. One book after another is flavour of the month, and then meaningless, ad infinitum. And I just thought, oh dear, you know, he's having a bad day, (laughs) first of all. But also I thought, is that true? I mean, it made me just think, you know, okay, so yes, I buy a lot of poetry books. I don't read them all straight away as soon as I buy them. In fact, I rarely mm. do. They go in a pile and then they go on the bookshelf. But, but then something that I really haven't enjoyed, or if I'm never going to read it, I tend to get rid of. Otherwise the, the space runs out. I have a limited space on my bookshelf. And so, and I, I absolutely do go back. I think I go back more to poetry books than I do with novels. Definitely. I don't know. What about you? Yeah, no, absolutely the same. Um, I'm always reconsulting particularly loved books, you know, like, I don't know, like Rilke's Duino Elegies, for example. I've had a copy of that for 40 years. And I I often, I don't think I've even finished it yet. But I I love the first few Elegies so much so that once every six months I'll pick it up and and read. Maybe that's enough. You know, why do we have to read and love every poem in a collection? I, I sort of think actually... If if somebody buys my book and there's one poem mm. that they remember or that they go back to, I'm perfectly happy. <laughs> well, I because of my propensity to take instant dislikes because it saves time, um, <laughs> there's this thing that I am quite often wrong. So, uh, you know, I do return to things and have completely different opinions about them sometimes. So, mm. Mm. Um, But no, I mean, I, I don't buy that. And maybe one or two books are in the churn of books that... Uh, you know, I, I don't think I ever need to read again, but the, there's very few. Yeah. I think it's because I think of, you know, there are certain writers I just think of as uh, poets. In a way, you th- I think of them as people to consult that uh, uh, more than, you know, reading a novel. Actually, you know, if you get the collected works of somebody's poems, for example, it's almost like a condensed person there that you can talk to and refer to like an old friend and if you love that po- yeah. poet yeah you miss reading them even someone that i've been reading since i was in my teens like wb yates you know I'll, I'll every now and again pick it up and read one of his poems and yeah. just love it and it's quite different from novels isn't it poetry collections yeah so maybe matt was having a bit of a bad day there and thinking oh you know my book's going out into the ether no one's going to read it i don't think there's a poet alive that's ever not had that moment of what the hell's the point of all this <laughs> true i think it's part of the cycle of just writing really isn't it yeah i think i think so why I am think i doing so. this <laughs> this thing about going back to stuff on the bookshelf that sort of struck me as i went immediately and i looked through and something that rather jumped out was sam willett's oh yeah his collection new light for the old dark published by cape and it it was shortlisted for both the T.S. Eliot and the Forward Prize back in 2010. I remember buying this and I was really taken with it. And, and I thought, gosh, I haven't seen his name in the magazines or, uh, or anything lately. And I wondered if, you know, what, what he was up to. And anyway, so I did a bit of digging online and the, the latest, the most recent thing I could find was when he was on the next generation poets list in 2014. And, there's on you can go online there's an interview with him and he's reading a couple of poems from this book and um but after that i don't know i i couldn't find any references to him at all until an email came through the other day from the poetry society trailing uh the next uh, the new poetry review and it said including poems by da 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 sam willits so that was rather strange that that should happen just as i was mm. picking up his book and wondering about him because i thought oh he'd be good to get on the poddy oh. But um, yeah, maybe he's a reserved sort of person and perhaps he's not, not into that. But if he's got some book in the offing, then who knows? But So this collection, whenever you read anything about him, there's always talk about his background and you know, he went to Oxford. And then he had 10 years when he was a, a drug addict and recovering and did recover. And a lot of that experience is in this collection, but there's also poems about his mother who escaped 
the Nazis as a child. And there was so much in it that I just found very moving. So I thought I would just read a very short poem. It's one that stayed for me for a long time afterwards, and it's a triolet, so a, a three, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight-line poem with a particular scheme, a certain amount of repetition. And it's called Thames Triolet. She thought that she might breathe the river, breathe the river and never rise. By the lock where the brown geese shiver, she thought that she might breathe the river, lie back from this world forever, the dim sky closing on her eyes. She thought that she might breathe the river, breathe the river and never rise. So it's something about mm. the form really fits the topic. I think that's excellent. Yeah, I, I tried to write one. In fact, I think you brought this along to a reading group once and uh, I thought, oh, I'll have a go at that and wrote some out of drivel <laughs> because I've never tried it before. But I think this works so well because it is that kind of obsessional... It seems to be a moment where somebody's thinking about throwing themselves into the river or, you know not existing anymore and that thought keeps re recurring with us the first line how that recurs on the fourth seventh and eighth line or whatever it is it's not necessarily representative of the no. entire book but there's so much variety in the book but anyway that was my point was sam willett you know where are you sam we want you back where's the next collection talking about social media i saw a an excerpt from a poem by mary oliver that a oh, yes. copywriter friend had uh, put on facebook and i thought god that's great and um, my experience of mary oliver is confined to being lent one of her books about 20 years ago and just reading it and thinking this is just the same poem times 40 um, which was <laughs> a really just a, a horrible thing to think yeah <laughs> I think it's because I have a prejudice against American poetry because everybody I know seems to love it, and I just think, you know, have you read Greek poetry? Do you want to? <laughs> do you want re you know some real talent from the twentieth century? And this plays to my prejudices anyway. So, but what I did was buy a Dream Work by Mary Oliver um, last week, and I've absolutely, absolutely fallen in love with this book. I. <laughs> I just can't tell you how much I love it. And, um, <laughs> so completely wrong, as usual. And this is a hallmark of my reading. Oh, but very good of you to face up to a prejudice and then find actually, no, you quite like it. Good. Tell, tell us more. Honestly, I'm only halfway through it, but it is just I just feel so kind of touched and that sense of of recognising a person as somehow having something to say to you as an individual that you get occasionally from poet, poems. And maybe it's about the time or the moment that you find yourself in in your own life. But I'm just reading this book and every, <laughs> just it's like feeding my soul in a way that, uh, it, you know, just reminds me of why I love poetry so much. Hmm. There's almost a mystical engagement with, with nature in her poetry, which, you know, I, I like and I love and respect. But... Um, in this book as well, this dream work, from what I can tell just hastily reading about it a bit, was she was really talking about her own personal circumstances in a more thinly veiled way. And there's a, a, a very famous poem in here called The Journey. Basically, it's a, it's a poem about just leaving home and, and taking care of and being emotionally blackmailed and kind of going out into the world and looking after the, o the only person she can look after, which is herself. But mm. it, it's, a, it's a wonderfully empowering kind of uh, poem that makes you feel really good about, you know, <laughs> prioritising yourself. And she doesn't do or didn't do many um, interviews, but there was a, an interview with Lionel Shriver, the uh, novelist that she mm. did a while ago. And she told... Lionel Shriver about the fact that, you know, there was abuse in her childhood and, you know, it's something that she couldn't really talk about. But this, th these poems are kind of are full of that sense of having escaped it. And what she's escaping into in her personal life, she, she had a, a sort of 40-year relationship um, that was, you know, very fulfilling for her. But what she's escaping into is a kind of connection with nature 
and in some poems that they're, they're, they're woven very close together and so that the nature almost becomes a kind of what's in outside in the outside world and what's in her is very is a very thin barrier and it's sort of beautifully done but there's this one poem which is just so meditative, which I'll share with you, which isn't one of the ones that people mainly share. It's called Knife. Something just now moved through my heart like the thinnest of blades as that red tail pumped once with its great wings and flew above the grey cracked rock wall. It wasn't about the bird. It was something about the way stone stays mute and put, whatever goes flashing by. Sometimes, when I sit like this, quiet, all the dreams of my blood and all outrageous divisions of time seem ready to leave, to slide out of me. Then, I imagine, I would never move. By now, the hawk has flown five miles at least, dazzling whoever else has happened to look up. I was dazzled, but that wasn't the knife. It was the sheer, dense wall of blind stone without a pinch of hope or a single, unfulfilled desire sponging up and reflecting so brilliantly as it has for centuries, the sun's fire. It's hmm, nice. There's something really nice about that kind of stoicism and accepting. It's kind of... And seeing into the the nature of things, just the stillness of a stone wall, it's just such a meditation. Yeah, I really liked that. So yeah, I heartily recommend it. And it, you know, in the face of me being completely wrong about her in the past, so um, Mary Oliver, dream work, mm. absolutely loving it. Excellent. Good to know. 